You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and guest co-host Michael Rice. All right, in this episode, the English choral tradition. Is it misogynist? Is it harmful? Is it ageist? Countertenor, choral director, and friend of the show, Christopher Lowry, has a surprising and galvanizing take in our free throw segment. Plus, in the two-minute drill, hey, don't bully Norma, or she'll do something terrible to your kids. Find out who else is PO'd and how much it's going to cost the Met. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow Apple Podcasts. Super simple. Just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. It all goes to operaboxscore at gmail.com and comes back to you in the form of the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin. And one of these days, I want to make those OBS stickers. Hmm. Oliver Camacho, where are we in the land of tennis? For those who maybe haven't been following. Well, the Indian Wells Masters event just ended yesterday. We're recording that That's right in my my homestead, Indian Wells. And if Carlos Alcarez, the the 19-year-old... If the 19-year-old Carlos Alcarez plays like he did in this tournament, he will end the year as number one. He's already reclaimed the number one spot. The only person, in my opinion, standing in his way is Novak Djokovic. It was insane. It was a masterclass. And the final, he put away Daniil Medvedev, who is was undefeated for 19 matches in two sets. I think it was 6-4, 6-3 or something like that. It was it was an embarrassing showing for Daniil Medvedev. Uh, but it's it was very exciting to watch this kid. He's He's got everything. He's creative. He has all the shots, uh, the athleticism, the confidence. Uh, it's really remarkable. He's basically Michael Rice. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> In a nutshell, right, just, Oliver? I mean, just three times as young. So, or three times younger. So. <laughs> Probably Michael four Rice, times younger. So great to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, hey there, Georgie boy, flying through the sky, so fancy free. Awesome, man. You were just in Chicago. I was. But you're not now. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm uh, based in Long Beach, but I was. I'm from Chicago originally, and uh, had to go out for a, my my grandmother passed away, a uh, hundred years mm-hmm. and change. Oh whoa! Um, okay. So, stand down on the south side. Ninety. I was at the the Hilton, at like ninety fifth and Cicero. I don't Man. know if you know that area. It's Did basically you come down Indiana. For some, for some portillos or some Al's beef? No, because I was with my brother who has celiac. So he's the worst person to go to Chicago with. I can't get a hot dog. <laughs> I can't get an Italian beef. I can't get a tavern-style pizza with him. Uh, as much as I love my brother. Um, but it was nice to see extended family and and that sort of thing and kind of drink in that area that I remember very well from uh, from my youth. It's awesome. Drink it's in awesome. As, in, as in take in the area. not take. Yeah, no more drinking. Not take right? have, have a beverage yeah. in the <laughs> area. Yeah. No more like, Miller Lite for me. <laughs> how, how about the Malort? No more Malort. No, none of that. Yikes. I'm, uh, uh, on the, the straight and narrow path, my Georgie boy, oh. my friend. <laughs> how, about, how about some opera now? The, the granddaddy of them all. It's just like the Rose Bowl. Opera now. It granddaddy is, yeah. of them all. Certainly still, as still decrepit as, as the Rose Bowl is and terrible seats. But yeah, we're back. OperaNowPodcast.com. <laughs> um, we, we've been doing some shows over the last right. couple of months regularly. So we're almost at 300. Yeah. 295, yes. I think so. 
but thank you, George. Uh, you know, it, I feel bad, you know, you know, with Ashley and Wesley passing away, <laughs> you know, I, I've got a lot of, you know, big shoes to fill. So we can only, I hope to honor their memory. Um, and you know, let's, let's do a great show guys. You know, let's do it's a great on the, show. It's on the employee handbook, basically. <laughs> so they were so beautiful. The two of them. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. But Matt Cummings was not beautiful. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> no. getting the, no. getting the. This, oh, this he's lovely. Sitting in a he's the one sitting in the closet, right? <laughs> no, that's Weston. No, that's that, Weston. That is Weston. Yeah. Okay. Matt's that the one that, that knows everything. Actually, Wesley. Matt... <laughs> I know his name is Weston, but I like saying Wesley. <laughs> Matt actually, I think, knows more about opera than I do. I will say yeah, that. And that's true. He, he knows. Oh, that's he sits okay. in that closet that's all the time. That's big of you, yeah. Oliver. He does nothing but look, listen <laughs> yeah. to opera in a closet. Yeah. <laughs> March Madness is, it's well, it's it's Matt, a 16 seed. Oh, my God. Purdue. one seed. Farley Dickinson beating Purdue. That was insane. <laughs> Crazy. It's the second time ever a 16 seed has beat a one seed. And then who beat Virginia? Seed Virginia was the other number the, one, right? Um, yeah, Virginia also. Who, got, who beat Virginia? I forget. Ah. Didn't last year's KC champions win? I don't know how but, to but say But two uh, number Furman. one seeds have been thrown out. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia was a four seed, but, and they were beaten by oh, Furman. Okay. I don't think I could tell you where Furman is. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I, we're going to have to figure out some sort of opera tie-in to the, uh, the bracket. I'm, I'm going to dream about that right now. Next episode. We're going to talk some opera. Uh, free throw. Earlier today, a galvanizing article was published on Early Music America. I know that's not everybody's first news source for opera, but it does relate to uh, singers, especially those who are trying to have more comprehensive careers doing uh, you know, ensemble and choral singing in addition to their solo careers. That article was penned by none other than friend of the show, countertenor, and conductor of his own ensemble called Altera, countertenor Christopher uh, Lowry. There he is. Uh, b before we uh, hear his free throw, on uh, the English choral tradition, let's listen to a little bit of his ensemble singing uh, Bulalo from Britain's carol, Ceremony of Carols with mm. male soprano soloist Eli McCormick. <laughs> Just a little bit of a professional choral ensemble called Altera, which is based in Providence, Rhode Island, and is directed by friend of the show and our former guest, countertenor Christopher Lowry. Welcome back to Opera Box Score. Thank you for having me, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, I wanted to get you on the show today because your article that was published earlier today, we're recording on Monday, uh, has been galloped to this section of the singing community, which is, you know, basically professional, are professional singers who do choral work while also trying to have, you know, some kind of solo career, be it in concert music, song, opera, 
you know, just this more like versatile singer, ones that aren't just specialists in choirs. And at, at the time of a recording, this article has only been published for about seven hours, already been shared 14 times. I don't know, have the stats on uh, how much, how many impressions it has made so far, but people who have read this uh, strongly agree <laughs> with what you have to say here. So let's begin. What is the thesis of this article that's published in Early Music America? Well, I, I just had been seeing a lot of, I think, genuine and well-intentioned sort of hit pieces uh, on social media recently about the English choral tradition um, in general. And I mean, from my perspective, I, I really do understand where a lot of this comes from. Um, you know, there has been a history, especially in this country, where we're at a, a sort of a remove from from the tradition to some degree, at least geographically, to kind of take some of the superficial lessons of the tradition and apply those aesthetics to all kinds of choirs, you know, indiscriminately. And a lot of that has led to uh, burnout, you know, among certain singers, uh, very often sopranos who feel like they're at they're at the, uh, you know, mercy of conductors often conductors who themselves aren't trained as singers, um, but in some cases, even, even singers. Um, and so I just, I kind of wanted to wade into this, this really fraught topic uh, by defending what I perceive to be, you know, the, the virtues of the tradition and trying to focus our minds on separating out, um, you know, criticisms of the tradition from misapplications of it. Um, I, I noticed that a lot of people will go to, you know, because the historical roots of the Anglican tradition were in all male choirs that by definition, the aesthetics that grew up in the tradition are misogynistic and therefore, you know, the English tradition itself is misogynistic. And I just, I fundamentally disagree with that at least as where it stands today. Um, I mean, it's it's grown in so many really exciting directions over the last 50 years. and. I mean, there's all types of ensembles using every kind of singer from young to old, man, woman, and be in between whatever you want to think about. Um, you know, so I, I think it's a, a very broad church. And and so I just felt I felt this piece kind of bubbling up inside me and and I just needed to kind of get it out. I didn't even realize we were talking about uh, like gender politics and massage. I mean, yes, that's part of this article, but I'm really just concerned about uh, what you have to say about especially sopranos and uh, just to be very like explicit for people who aren't singers who are listening, uh, how sopranos are obliged to sing straight tone in some of this music. And it's often very high and it's often, you know, has very um, complex uh, harmonies that need to be clearly delineated. And in order to do that, you need to have the voices not, uh, quote unquote, oscillating so much in their pitch. And we have great examples of how this sounds like with groups like um, Bochese 8, for example, which you cite here, which is one of my favorite groups. And I know them. And Andrea, the soprano one, she just has this freakish talent. She's brilliant that she can just sing, you know, above the staff all night long and it sounds gloriously in tune and she doesn't seem to get tired, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with your characterization there, using the word freakish. I mean, in, in the best sense. Um, and and I did get into that a little bit. I mean, I think that basically, um, there is something to talking about the amount of vibrato that is being used in choral music, especially higher up in the voice parts. I don't think it can be rigidly applied to every situation and every type of ensemble, but in a certain kind of very elite English style choir um, or a very elite early music group, for example, uh, yeah, the amount of vibrato does need to be sort of um, managed, if you like. And I use that word because management of vibrato can be something that's that's kind of dynamic and active. I mean, a singer sort of knows when they can use vibrato, how much of it they can use, when it's necessary for their vocal health versus, you know, the harmonic progression or the tuning of the chords, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of people that are working in different levels of choir or choirs in different contexts, you know, choral societies, community choirs, church choirs, school choirs, they're often asked by their directors to just sing straight as if that's the beginning and the end of the conversation. Um, not taking into account that actually the people that can do absolutely straight tone singing or very close to straight tone singing for hours on end, especially higher up in the voice are freaks. So um, basically what, what I wanted to say is there should be space in our conversation to allow for the freaks to flourish and also <laughs> and also for the for the rest of us human beings who are who are not born with those preternatural abilities to also uh you know think about think about these aesthetics intelligently and apply them to the degree that they they make sense in that context well you sort of take a gentle jab at um people who maybe don't even know what the these real choirs sound like, but they only are familiar with them, you know, through recordings or what they imagine they sound like, you know, but not actually having experienced what it's like to be in one of these British groups uh, that really have the tradition. Um, can you talk about your own experience um, as a singer who, you know, you're a higher voice and uh, you have uh, a strong solo career. You're, in fact, we're talking to you right now. You're in the middle of a recording project, which I don't know if we could talk about that, but you're in France right now. And uh, you know you have to uh, be able to deploy everything in your toolkit to sing Handel, you know, which you're often hired to sing. But then you do these uh, ensemble things, this ensemble singing, where it's a different technique that you're using. Yeah, I, I tried to talk a little bit in the article about you know, the different types of professional singer. And I sort of came up with, you know, two categories for a professional singer. One sort of a generalist singer who can sort of, you know, their lives are centered in, in solo work, um, either in song or opera concert work. And those who are really just choral specialists. And I think that a lot of the generalist singers, especially in the United States, because we don't have a, a huge um, group of choral specialist singers, they're able to kind of scale up and scale down their instrument in various ways uh, when they're doing choral work versus when they're they're being soloists. Myself, I would include <laughs> in that group of people. Um, but what I but I what what I wanted to say was that sometimes I see in the conversation. Uh, that there's a one size fits all mentality about vocal pedagogy in the United States specifically um, saying that 
the generalist way of singing is the right way, the one way, the only way. And I just kind of wanted to gently push back on that and say, no, actually, in fact, some of the choral specialists who sing in a different way sometimes without you know pure bel canto technique, their way is valid too. Um, and they have uh, they have a an instrument that that favors using their voice in this in this way. And I think that I think that you know uh, in my in my experience uh, singing on both sides of the Atlantic, I, I grew up singing. Uh, in a, a sort of Anglican light tradition in in the U.S., and then I I moved to the U.K. and I I was a choral scholar and did the whole professional choral scene for quite a while in London. Um, one of the things that we're we're not talking about here is that in in these these groups that are supposedly you know just about straight singing, they're not at all. I'm there's a huge amount of efficient tone that's constantly being generated by every single one of the singers in a group like Tenebrae, for example, or Polyphony that, that um, you know, uh, I had a privilege to work with many years ago. Um, and there's a huge carpet of bass sonority over which any individual voice can sympathetically um, resonate. So my, my experience as a singer working in, in that context is despite, you know, all the precision and the you know, obsessive focus on seeking perfect intonation and blend because there's this fantastic sort of buzzing sea of overtones. When when you sing in this context, it, it really feels quite healthy even to, to use less of the voice. Um, it's about efficiency and, um, and yeah, efficiency and buzz, uh, I guess. I don't know if that answers the question. No, no, no. I mean, I we're brushing up against a topic which you address in your article, um, Tenebrae Choir. Um, you suggest that some of the singers on, in the treble section, in the sopranos and alto section, uh, are younger, and maybe their uh, you know youth uh, accounts for their ability to recover more quickly, or or maybe they don't have such a large vibrato when you're when you're that age. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, this is not a hard and fast rule. Okay. Um, some of my my best friends on the London scene are older and they're, and they're still able to to use these freakish abilities, if you like, um, or these specialized abilities. But it does seem to me that for the average person who might have slimmer, more supple voice when they're younger, a lot of times they'll age out of that. And, you know, I think it's perfectly okay for that to be the case in, in much the same way that uh, dancers or athletes age out of their craft at some point, or at least they age out of the very, very elite level of their discipline. Um, we should be okay with the fact that this, that this is working in music as well um, without resorting to saying that what is being sought or you know, what is being done um, in, in terms of that singing is quote unquote wrong. It's it's not necessarily wrong, and in fact, I don't I don't think it is at all. Um, so that said, I think you know I, a lot of people that go through this tr transition, whose voices become heavier, um, often more mature, and and perhaps darker. There's a there's a whole bunch of different ways the voice can develop with age, um, but that does seem to be the typical route that a lot of voices follow. I mean, it can be quite painful, I think, for singers who 
gave many years of service to choral music, especially elite choral music, to kind of face this change in their voice and see the amount of opportunities for them professionally diminish. But I also think it's an opportunity for, for them and a bunch of, you know, one, one, one way one could look at it is a bunch of new opportunities emerge um, in repertoires, ensembles, contexts that, that they weren't necessarily suited to when they were younger. So I just kind of wanted to say that out loud because I, I, know, I know that, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, who have gone through this and they've, they've found it really challenging and, and painful period of their lives. And I, I wanted them to feel as if they weren't alone. But at the same time, I don't think it's right to, you know, backwards reason that um, therefore, you know, the techniques that the younger singers are using are quote unquote wrong. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, comment on the uh, dismantling of the BBC singers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a real tragedy, and I, I I sincerely hope that it's not final and that there's a way to reverse it. I'm reading in the last few days that there there might be a, a major boycott of the BBC Proms, which is the is the summer classical music. Uh, festival that happens at the Royal Albert Hall every summer uh, in London. And I, I do hope that people stick to their guns and put as much pressure on the BBC as possible to reverse this decision. I mean, BBC singers, you know, whether or not you you know about them, um, I mean, they are truly the only uh, full-time professional chorus in the UK. A lot of the, the choirs that we've been talking about on this podcast and that I mentioned in the article, they're essentially made up only of freelancers. They're not you know, full-time salaried positions. And I know that a lot of young singers in the UK and elsewhere really look up to the BBC singers and aspire uh, to their level of craft. So to see them go would, would do a huge disservice to this tradition everywhere in the world. So we're counting on you, BBC, to get this right. <laughs> the article is called Let's Talk About the Choral Tradition. It's published on earlymusicamerica.org. It's a free web article. Uh, I encourage all of you to read it. Christopher Lowry, thank you so much for joining us on Opera Box Score. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Christopher Lowry for joining us from France. He was recording uh, a opera in uh, Versailles, actually, and he was just on his break. So, um, But yeah, this article has been getting a lot of shares, and I'm sure by the time this um, episode drops, it will have been shared many more times. But uh, Michael, what do you have to say about, well, Christopher Lowry, I'll let you say that something about him, but it doesn't really apply so much to bass voices because bass voices don't have to be as precisely in tune as the, the higher up you go. That's and the... them's fighting words, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly within Reset, we can't, we have to hover around a C and a D where it's easy for a tenor or a soprano or a mezzo, but, um, but as far as Lowry, I mean, he is amazing. So my wife, uh, Jennifer Rivera, um, was, has sung all over the world. And we, uh, she was doing a, a production of Faramondo by Handel in Brisbane, directed by Paul Curran. And Chris Lowry was in that production. I don't recall his character's name, but he got up there when I heard him the first time. It was wonderful. Uh, like, just like, wow, this guy is really good. Great voice, great on stage. And I will add that my wife, Jennifer, received a, a coveted Helpman Award as Best Actress in an Opera in Ooh. Australia. They're so nice. far away, they have to have their own 
programs, I guess, and, and award systems. So, but Lowry is the real deal, man. I was awesome. blown away by him. He's fantastic. Thanks again to Christopher for throwing a free throw our way. You can do the same too. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes about, say, straight tone singing or anything else that's on your mind. Operaboxscore, gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster. Get the OBS lapel pin. Right now, get the two-minute drill. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Sonia Yoncheva has rejected the New York Times' comparison of her singing Norma to her colleague Angel Blue as Violetta in La Traviata. Yoncheva tweeted, You see, Mr. Zachary Wolf from the New York Times had always written bitter critics about me since my very first appearances at the Met Opera, so this one was not a surprise. Following Mr. Zachary Wolf's review and Yoncheva's complaint about the comparison, the Bulgarian diva returned to Twitter to complain about being constantly bullied on the internet. She then went on to clarify that the bullying wasn't referring to critics, but to other, quote, deranged people on online opera forums and social media. I'm speaking on the behalf of many colleagues of mine who are not willing to return to the Met because of these kind of writing. The Met has been ordered via arbitration to pay Russian soprano Anna Netrebko more than $200,000 for performances it canceled after she declined to denounce Putin following the invasion of Ukraine. The arbiter ruled that the Met should compensate Netrebko for 13 canceled performances because of the, quote, pay-or-play contractual agreement, which requires institutions to pay performers even if they later decide not to engage them. The Met has fired Yusuf Abazov from the current production of Tosca due to his association with Anna Netrebko. They are married. The company also cited potential conflict with Ukrainian soprano Ludmila Monosurska singing the role of Tosca and Abazov's criticism of Angel Blue when she canceled her performances at Arena de Verona in protest of the use of blackface. Peter Gelb said, he, quote, had hoped Avazov would withdraw from the production. Matthew Polanzani has been announced as the replacement Cavaradossi. After Arts Council England's chief executive, Darren Henley, tried to defend his decision to cut 30% from ENO's budget by suggesting that the future of opera might lie in the, quote, fresh thinking of opera in car parks, ENO's artistic director, Annalise Miskemen, told The Guardian, there is fear at the effect of cuts on talent, innovation, accessibility, and the future of the art form. You have internationally renowned UK talent because they've come through the ecosystem that supports artists at every stage. We're losing a whole generation of talent who cannot be sustained in this country. Cleveland Orchestra's 23-24 season announcement has lots to offer fans of opera and vocal music. Highlights include soprano Lawrence Snoofer in Mahler 4, countertenor Tim Mead in a world premiere by George Benjamin, friend of the show Barbara Hannigan conducting Haydn and Ligeti, baritone Simon Kinleyside in an all-Mahler program, and the magic flute with Julian Pregardien as Tamino. Sir Derek Jacobi wonders where the big voices are. The acclaimed actor who is receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award at this year's Olivia Awards laments that the use of voice, the magic of voice, has all but disappeared in the theater. Not exactly a story about opera, but we'll connect the dots after the drill. Don't worry. Last week, Teatro Real made history with not a world premiere, but a metaverse premiere of Shostakovich's The Nose. 
It was a Barry Kosky production performed in the Royal Meta Theater, a 3D replica of the Teatro Real located in Utopian. The first Spanish metaphor. Don't lose it, George. No word yet if any of the Avatar singers were bullied by a virtual critic. Are you Michael Che or Colin Jost? I can't tell. Around 100 people who have experienced homelessness are Take to perform guess. in a production <laughs> organized by Streetwise Opera. Streetwise Opera Chief Executive Rachel Williams hopes to give agency and a feeling of ownership to her constituents with these performances as they, quote, celebrate the creativity and courage of those who have been homeless. Legendary bass baritone, educator, and humanitarian activist Simon Estes has received the San Francisco Opera Medal, the company's highest it's honor. It's a major award. Estes said, opera is such an important form of art. It helps people all over the world because music is the international language that brings us all together. Opera on Tap has announced the $500 winner of its TikTok composition competition. Laura Hobina Costa's I Am Lying in the Bed which features mezzo-soprano Eugenia Forteza, who's also a writer for Classical Singer magazine. Hobina Costa is a New York City-based multicultural composer who is also part of this season's American Opera Initiative at Washington National Opera. The finalists for the Opera House of the Future competition have been announced. The city of Dusseldorf aims to build not just a new opera house, but a lively and public space open to the entire city, offering a wide range of services. Finalist designs are on the OBS website, operaboxscore.com. On the disabled list, well, hey, it's Sonia Yancheva, who was replaced by Angela Mead in the title role of Norma last week at the Met. The cast change came days after Yancheva criticized the New York Times for a review that compared her to Angel Blue, but you knew that already. San Francisco Opera canceled the entire run of its portable adaptation of La Boheme due to heavy rains in the Bay Area. Boheme Out of the Box was supposed to be a 75-minute version of the Puccini classic. We wished we'd been able to do the show, said the company's managing director, but we didn't want to bring people out here and then have them be disappointed. Exit stage right English opera director Tom Hawks, who died at 85. Hawks directed over 500 productions worldwide, served as the artistic director of Phoenix Opera, and worked with Opera Theatre of St. Louis. And on this day, March 20th in 1680, it was the birth of Italian composer Emanuele da Storga in Sicily, also known as Gioacchino Cesare Rincon, everybody's favorite, in 1890. Italian tenor Benamino Gili was born. Also in 1890, Polish soprano Maria Janowska was born. She created the role of Angela in Kurt Weill's The Tsar Has His Photograph Taken. And in 1915, on this day, March 20th, Ildebrando Pizzetti's Fedra premiered at La Scala. And that's your two-minute drill. Tosca, sung not by Ludmila Monostroska, but our birthday girl, Maria Janowska. Uh, that was a recording, an acoustic recording made in 1928 in German, Nur der Schönheit, 
as opposed to um, VC Dart at Nordischenheit. Um, anyway. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. On the drill, like sometimes you get a bad week, sometimes you get a good week, sometimes you get a great week, and sometimes you get a Michael Rice week. This is the this bad week because I'm is here. Jacked and stacked. <laughs> I thought I was the bad week. No, 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 man. I'm, we're, we're building up. We have so much to talk about. I, I cannot wait uh, to get into it. We're going we're gonna to hustle dream. right in. Sonia Yoncheva is basically dominating the drill this week. Oliver, hmm. what's going on? Where do, where do we begin? If you were just paying attention, you know, to all the activity, it felt like there was one story after the next uh, as it happened. And then, well, we're going to get to the end of Trepko story, but it just felt like a really bad week for uh, PR for the Met and to some extent the New York Times. Um, so let's just start by saying that I personally don't think that Sonia Yoncheva is the type of diva yet who I want to hear sing Norma. Norma is the type of role you sing when you are like at the top of your game and, you know, you're saying something about your career when you choose to sing Norma. So you open yourself up to criticism because, you know, only the greats even attempt to do it. It is one of the, it is probably the hardest and most comprehensive role in the bel canto repertory. Mm -hmm. So I think she did she it to herself. She was miscast. Well, I mean, I don't know who, you, I don't know who you blame her managers or Peter Gelb or uh, herself for thinking that, you know, she's ready to do it. I mean, she's doing it and, you know, she's getting through each performance, but the criticisms uh, are the criticisms one would hear when trying to sing this role. So maybe Zachary Wolf, his misstep was, you know, trying to compare two sopranos in the same review. Uh, but they're different roles. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, you, you're about to say. I've always found since his early day, Zachary Wolf is a weasel. Oof. And I don't like him as a critic. Okay. Um, <laughs> Go on. He just is, I, I long for the days of, you know, so in my research, Wolf is not necessarily uh, uh, an experienced musician. So he replaced essentially Tomasini. Right. Uh, Tomasini wasn't the chief music critic, but he was doing opera. And look, Tomasini was a, a piano player. And a lot of his reviews, to some degree, were like, yeah, it wasn't great, but they they did a good job. Kind of that but kind of. But you always used to say that Tomasini was a butt boy for the Met. Well, he was, but well, we can't say that on this show. That's. Yes, we Just because my voice cut that wet three, <laughs> two, one, click. This is a clean show, Oliver. I, I just like what's what's the, the the problem I have with Wolf is that he often says things, he often addresses things he doesn't need to, and he leaves out things that he should address right. in his reviews. Well, for me, the point is that Yoncheva should not should have a thicker skin. I know singing Norma no, is uh, so. No, of course. Aside from, I'm sorry, Oliver. Go ahead. But it's so hard to sing this role. It's Norma. That's crazy. If, yeah. yeah. If you're gonna do it, you better have a thick skin because you're gonna be compared. But to... why bring up Angel Blue in a different production of a show? It's apples. It's and apples oranges, and oranges. Right? Thank yeah. you. Booyah! Oh dang, that, man! This is why same, we lead podcasts, George. Same. This is why we do it. Here, you know. <laughs> So anyway, so she. Well, let George she, hold on. Let George. George had something go to on, say. Just, look, look. It's it's the first principle when you get into the arts is if you believe the good reviews, you got to believe the bad ones too. And yep. if you don't like it, then just ignore it and don't get out any of the, attention. Get out of the business. Just go read the sports section. Well, I mean, clearly, you know, it it stung, 
And uh, I understand why it would sting because it's a really hard endeavor to take on this role, especially after being praised unanimously for her performances in in um, Fedora earlier this season. I think it really was hurtful for her to get such negative feedback about her Norma. And of course, there's, as she said, there are these forums and these uh, in, on social media where people are just like tearing her apart because she's not doing what XYZ singer did in Norma, you know? So it would seem that her uh, tweet about being bullied was talking about Zachary Wolf. Like and then, yeah, but then somebody came out and said, why are you reading your reviews? And then she like double, she went back and said, no, 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 I'm talking about yeah. these, you know, deranged people on the internet. Yeah, I think it is, the, 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 the something like this is probably the best correlation, um, George and Oliver, to this notion of opera, sports and opera. What the, it's, if you, if you're, riding high and hitting 375 mm -hmm. all the time great but then uh, oh loser struck out <laughs> uh, the, he blew it blew it and the press gets crazy after you yes and it is really like especially at that level i'm not talking about like a regional like kansas city or, or phoenix somebody doing a show but if you're singing at the opera and you're this person again nothing against her but there's there's especially if you're singing in new york or if you are playing for the Yankees or the Mets or the Rangers or the Islanders or the devil, even if you, they don't even give coverage to the devils in New York, they hate the devils. It's this high wire act. You're playing in the, the, the premier media league, whatever it is. And if, if you don't deliver for whatever reason, and even if you do deliver, they're going to go after you. She, she needs happen. to take a page out of every NHL team from Canada's hockey coach. When they're, when they're in the, the post-game press conference, win or lose, those guys all say the same thing, which is basically, uh, yeah, well, like, uh, we just want to put pucks on nets, basically, and have real quick yeah, changes. Yeah, we, we didn't forecheck enough this day, but uh, we'll do more forecheck in the next episode. You uh, know, sometimes we're just going to keep our heads down and play our game, keep our noses clean, and just we're just going to go on to um, play. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, George, in, yeah. In yeah, 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 yeah. So... After all of this happened, like the next the next day, we find out that she pulls out of <laughs> performance of Norma, Yikes. and it didn't sound yeah. like she was sick. It just felt like you know what, I'm butt hurt right now, so uh, I'm gonna <laughs> Again, let you guys Oliver, keep keep the language clean, please, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, right. more, more PR nightmare for the Met. Anna Detrebko, Michael, you read this story. Kick it off for us. Two hundred grand. Yeah. So. When this happened, you know, I, I can't believe it was only about a year ago. It feels like it was as long as COVID that, you know, Putin, <laughs> you know, and Russia came in to, I mean, the whole thing is, I remember whatever it was like eight years ago when they went into Crimea and I'm like, is this the 21st century where countries are in, it's, it's like, you know, Prussia annexing Alsace-Lorraine in like the 1870s or whatever the hell that happened. Yeah. I thought yeah. we were in a more modern society. Nope. But no, it's true. So, and, and as much as I, contrary to public belief, I am anti-Putin and I think, you know, invading Ukraine is crazy. But at the same time, when it happened, I thought to myself, so you're going to tell this person that unless you denounce Vladimir Putin, we are going to cancel your contract. And I thought, well, w whatever I feel about it morally, you're going to have to pay this person. This person is owed contracts. money. Yeah, yeah you, you can't cancel somebody because of uh, differing political belief, d despite what it is. So 
just the like the the numbers and sense of it is like oh this is gonna some at some point this is gonna come out that they had to pay her off because they canceled it for for no real practical reason so that that's my take on it sure surely gelb who don't call me shirley i'm not a big fan of but he's no dummy he must have done the math and been like probably we're going to end up paying this and it is worth it to me and to the face of the organization and the statement that it makes to spend two hundred thousand dollars putting our foot down it's good pr in a way because of that uh but also i think there would have been protests if if she was able to fulfill her contracts uh they they would have lost ticket revenue probably because of it so there you go yeah i i'm not in any way aligning with her but i knew the fact that they had to pay her off or or not not even pay her off they had to honor some level of the contract makes perfect sense so do you think they're gonna have to pay off yusuf avazov for canceling his contract possible well i think they said they hoped he would withdraw Mm -hmm. which means I hope we don't have to pay them or pay him. <laughs> but even like, who was the guy with, with the, the, he had the swastikas, Yevgeny Nitkin, who yes, had the swastikas yes, on his yeah. arm. Yeah. yeah, even that, I bet he got paid too. They probably gave him some or, you know, all of whatever contract he was under and just, it never yeah, became public. Again, he said, he, like in Nitkin's case, he was in a metal band, whatever. But like, even with Intrepco, you know, I don't, Putin's not a great. He, there's a, a great, um, uh, like bootleg recording. Buddy Guy, he's a jazz drummer, and people may know this reference from Seinfeld. There's a recording of him like going on and on about his his road crew, and he's swearing up a storm, and it's terrible. And then he re- somebody mentions one person on the team, and he's like, "Yo, this guy, this guy, this is not my kind of guy." <laughs> and and that's you know putin is not our kind of guy but at the same time you have to honor you know a contract you, you, you can't do. just cancel you can't just not even cancel somebody but cancel a contract is what uh, i'm saying oliver is is derek jacoby your kind of guy now that you know how to say his name <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's just interesting that this thing is happening in theater, and he's basically talking about, in this article in The Guardian, he's talking about how the new plays, and especially the emphasis on, um, you know, stage technology uh, is making standard rep sort of fall by the wayside, and the people who can really elocute and project, you know, Shakespeare or whatever, you know, like those types of actors are uh, becoming scarce, which has a parallel in opera. I mean, like we're doing less, you know, um, Verisma, we're doing less, Mm -hmm. you know, of like 19th century repertoire that requires, you know, solid technique and like a lot of projection. We're doing more 20th century opera. Some of it is amplified. We're doing more Baroque opera. You don't need to have that big of a voice. You need more agility, you know. So we're sort of in this cycle right now where we we are in danger of, you know, losing the pipeline for those voices that need to sing standard repertoire, that need to sing lyrical lines, that need to, you know, do the baby Wagner blonde, the blonde roles and then move into the, you know, the Brunhildas Um and like that's why people get so excited about a singer like Lisa Davidson, who seems like to come out of nowhere. People say it's mm-hmm. like a once in a lifetime voice, one in a million voice, because they're just not used to hearing a loud voice that just cuts over an orchestra easily anymore. 
Well, I think that's been the, the the thing that people have talked about for many years. You know, where have the voices gone? Where are the Reason X? Where are the uh, Cornell McNeils or the Robert Merrills or the mm. or, or the Tibaldis? Even and not to say that they're not good singers out there, but but that is uh, certainly something that people have wondered about in terms of uh, you know traditional repertoire versus newer repertoire, and even the Met is saying. Uh, Screw that. We're doing new stuff now. Yeah. And I don't know if that if that was ticket sales, you know, the hours outsold what was it? Don the, the French five act yeah. nine hour Don Carlos. Yeah, right. Right. So right. Uh, but uh, but and you know, you're gonna have people that are like on the fanzines and the websites who are like, Where are these people now? And why don't we that's a huge question just about training. You know, there are you used to be able to you were training and you'd work with the teacher four days a week or five days a week. And now we're, you know, you're pumping out, you know, voice majors more so than ever before mm -hmm. within like the university system. We have more system. voice majors than we have engineers in the U.S. I know. <laughs> but we have more voice majors with smaller voices? Is, is well, that where uh, we're headed? It's just, it's a different, they, I think to some degree, and Oliver, we've talked about this many times, I mean, since we were Two, both like 19 years old. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, even then. Um, the uh, American singers, uh, it, it's always been that they're very facile. They can move within different genres, within different repertory, within different languages. And that's fine, but you wonder, and a, a good friend of mine and, and of Oliver's, I don't know if they were good friends, uh, Kevin Keyes was always very old school baritone about the big voices and, and I agree to him to some degree and partially I thought eh, maybe you got to calm down a little bit but that idea of nurturing a voice and, and building a voice to sing this larger rep Wagner or like large Verdi or, or Verismo those kinds of things but but that's nothing new I mean people I think have been complaining about that for for quite a while yeah but no but George to get back to your point there are more teachers now who are teaching singing that don't have the same experience, that don't mm -hmm. have careers themselves on the stage. It's just like they went to school, they got a doctorate so they could teach, and they have no idea what it means to sing on the stage of the Met, you know? Well, and if the repertoire of contemporary American composition is moving more into chamber opera so that it's more likely it's going to be produced and produced again and again, we're working with smaller ensembles of instruments so people don't have to sing as loud. Right? That could if you be. just look at the acoustics of it. You know, I will say in reference to Sir, Sir Derek, uh, I think it was about eight years ago, I saw a play uh, called Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth mm -hmm. and Huge Mark Rylance. West End. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw it in, in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mark Rylance, some of people, like he was the, the cutter. There's a movie, you know him from films. Mm -hmm. And he plays this kind of down on his luck person living in a trailer in the woods of like England somewhere. And there's like a whole 15 minute final scene where he's alone. And his voice, blew, and he's a small man. He's not a, a large true. man. That's true. It was the most visceral thing I have ever seen in my life on stage. Whether it's theater or or an opera, uh, uh, an opera, he just filled this theater. It was amazing, and and nobody moved. Yeah, and he would just scream at the top of his lungs and, and have these things, and then he'd move down to a, a lower, and then it was 
so uh, again, that was eight years ago. Maybe Sir Derek thinks that it stopped a couple of years ago, <laughs> but they're out there. Somebody like Rylance is out they're there. They're out there. Apparently, apparently, the future is out there, and the future is now. I could barely get through this story at the Teatro Real. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I love Shostakovich. I love Barry Kosky. This, the Utopion, the first Spanish metaverse, this is utter nonsense. I will never, I repeat, I will never see this and I will never create this. I, I do not get it. I don't understand it and I don't like it. Take that, America. <laughs> it's fine that, that you don't understand, you don't get it. But, um, you know, if <laughs> Here we, we go. If we are going to go forward with opera and the metaverse becomes a thing, which it could become it's a thing. It's not going to become a thing. It's not. Facebook is doomed. It's they, not going to become a thing. Zucker nerd bet on the wrong horse. Yeah, I know. Well, and I don't know my social medias I and just, all that, but it's I not going to become I a, would like yeah. for there to be a representation of the arts, the performing arts in the metaverse if it's going to happen. So Okay. I mean, I, when, when we were during the, during the lockdown, when we were all on Zoom, we were, in essence, creating the pathway for needing this type of thing. All this, you know, recording. It didn't take. Of, it didn't take, Oliver. It didn't have any staying power. It didn't have any staying power, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be another catastrophe in the future. And we don't need to figure out a path to producing art. There's plenty of other pandemics that'll lock us up again. Don't <laughs> what worry. about the George, mushroom? Pen, the, the mushroom, yeah. the cordyceps, you know? Cordycite, they're, they're into brain. Scabies. Boom. It's all going to be pew, scabies. Pew, pew, pew. Shoot, yeah, shoot, sure shoot. <laughs> make sure you go to the website, apperboxhorror.com. You can click on the link to this article. Look at some of the final contenders for the new opera house in Dusseldorf. It's man, I don't know what this to think. This is the future of opera. It's like they're all made out of matchsticks. Yeah, I'm not sure about this. I don't I, know, I mean, man. One of them looks like the Guggenheim. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does a little bit. I don't know. Th this this one from the um, HPP Architecten. Oh, who looks like they're from Dusseldorf? Actually, this looks pretty groovy. It's like these sort of concrete boxes with glowing sides to them I, you don't need me to describe okay so if saying, you're listening if you're listening out. to this podcast um go to the uh show notes uh in the in your tab and i'm gonna ask george george to put the link actually in the show notes i will baby. um so that people put can click in. right on it and look at these pictures because for us for us to be talking about a picture uh is is tough this this is like it's evocative Look, this is it's a it's a tough order to make a new opera house, especially in Germany when it actually matters. Hmm. What's wrong with the old opera houses? I wonder. Well, yeah. yes, they look beautiful. They're, they're like columns, and they fill well, up. Well, but a, are a they lively public spaces that offer a wide range yeah, of services? They're, they're normally on. They're normally like in a, in a palazzo, a palazzo, so uh, to speak. You know, yeah, there's an yeah. open area in a front. I'm uh, the uh, George is anti-future. It seems anyway. No, that's that's been clear for a long time. Actually. That is not true. Whoa, sorry, is, I don't mean that to raise is that not up. True. I'm not. You know me. I'm a I'm a progressive. Wait, wait till you get my good call at the end of the show. Before we before we wrap up this seg though, San Francisco Opera cancels the entire run of its portable adaptation of La Boheme due to heavy rains in the Bay Area. Climate chaos. It's real, Michael. Yeah, I mean, they said they didn't want to be disappointed, but really they didn't want them to get wet, I think, ultimately was the problem. It's very sports-like, being like, yeah, yeah we, we can't it's a rain delay. Hey, let, it, we, we'll, we'll cancel this <laughs> one. A, yeah. Let's do two bohems tomorrow. It's a great day for an opera. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's play two. 
Ah, Ernie Banks. Love it. Ah, he's the best. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is how we wrap up every show. Something great about the biz or something dreadful. Going to start, as always, with Oliver Camacho. I want to shout out, this is a good call, to the swan guy. Uh, who is an opera fanatic who went to, I think, every performance of uh, Lohengrin um, wearing a oh, the very, guy with the hat, the hat. <laughs> yeah, very, a very striking swan costume. Like he had gave himself like a black collar and then uh, painted his face white and then Lovely. put like a swan doll or a swan, yeah, on his head and was like walking around with like a chain. Um, and so many people were like just fascinated by this and like wanted their picture taken with him, including members of the Met Orchestra and the Orchard, Christine Gerke and the Lohengrin, uh, Piotr Bachawa. So if you look, if you look up, uh, you'll find these pictures all over the internet or social media of the Swan guy, who I have on good authority is the same guy who shows up at early music festivals dressed up as Louis Fourteenth. <laughs> He's got a career of showing up at performances in costume. Thank you, the Swan guy, for making our, our experience more magical. Michael Rice, what do you got? A good call or a bad call? Uh, it actually just jumped into my head. I didn't have anything planned. So, um, friend of uh, my show, at least, or uh, Mark Thomas Ketterson. He is a, a critic and reviewer. Not critical. He's a reviewer. He reviews shows. Does a lot with um, Des Moines Opera in terms of going there every year. He went out to uh, Kansas City to see The Shining. Or, as they say in The Simpsons, The Shinin'. <laughs> and he was at the airport and there were two people that were dressed as the crazy twins like a, a man and a woman with long, one had a beard like a husband and wife or a boyfriend and girlfriend you know do you guys know the movie The Shining yes so the, the murder the twins who are right. at the end of the hallway but this guy had like a long beard and his wife or girlfriend um, you know she was herself but they had the same blue dress and they were just standing in the Kansas City airport. And Mark kind of intimated that I think they're here to see The Shining. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll find a link to the picture. Or I'll send you guys the pictures. You can see it. It's the best. It's really, it's completely crazy. But it, it, it was off the top of my head. And I'm going to go good call, bad call, worst call. So good call article in the New York Times before the weekend, which featured American opera directors Ted Huffman, Lydia Steyer, and Arby Schlather. Good call is that these folks, two of whom I know well, are getting the press that they deserve for their work in these European opera houses and festivals. The bad call is, so now here in America, we are exporting our jobs overseas and our making of products overseas, and now we're exporting our art. This is some of the most beautiful production photographs I've seen, and we can't see them. How come these productions aren't being done in our country? That's what I want to know. The worst call is this film version of The Magic Flute. It was made in 2022. It's just come out now in this country. Produced, executive produced by Roland Emmerich, of all people, who you might remember from such gems as The uh, Day After Tomorrow and 2012. So this is a version of the magic flute, which is like part Harry Potter and the main guy played by, oh, I forget his name, sort of goes into the, it's almost like a, dare I say, metaverse of the magic flute opera itself. You hate that. I was confused. <laughs> Maybe I better go see it. 
that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or you just email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And hey, that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Your audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest co-host, Michael Rice, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you revenge cancel your performance of Norma. We're back with an all new show next week when we celebrate baseball's opening day, the opera way. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more opera in car parks and pubs and on your tablet. Join us.